Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Colombia held the first round of presidential elections on May 29th, and it's hard to overstate just how surprised most analysts were by the results. For generations, Colombia has been dominated by a small political establishment that ranges from the center-right to the hard-right. Unlike other countries in Latin America, Colombia has never elected a president from the left wing, nor has Colombia ever experienced a right-wing populist. Yet this will be the choice as Colombians head to the polls in a runoff presidential election on June 19th. The left-wing politician Gustavo Petro earned about 40% of the vote in the first round, and defying all expectations, a 77-year-old right-wing populist, Rudolfo Hernandez, bested the establishment candidate to come in second place with about 28% of the vote. His personal wealth, bluster, and clever use of social media have earned Rudolfo Hernandez comparisons to Donald Trump. My guest today, Elizabeth Dickinson, is Senior Analyst for Columbia at the International Crisis Group. She breaks down the first-round election results and explains why these results are so surprising. We take a deep dive into the interesting biographies of these candidates, then have an extended conversation about what these elections mean for the worsening security situation in Colombia and a landmark 2016 peace deal that ended Colombia's long-running civil war with the FARC insurgency. I always love speaking with Elizabeth Dickinson. This is a, a timely conversation. I think you'll appreciate it. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I think it will give you the context you need to understand this deeply unusual and consequential election in Colombia. And one quick ask for regular listeners. If you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts, please do take a moment to leave a review. It helps. Five stars if you'd like, uh, though any honest review is always appreciated. Thanks. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Elizabeth Dickinson of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
So I think what this um, what this result represents is really a demonstration of the extent of frustration with the traditional political elite here in Colombia. I think what we had expected to happen was for this really to go into a second round contest between Gustavo Petro, who's the left-leaning former mayor of Bogota and has really pitched himself as, as sort of an outsider and someone who's ready to shake up the system, um, and a candidate that was very much supported by the establishment, who was Federico Gutierrez, uh, otherwise known as FICO. And we had expected those two to go into the second round and really for this to be sort of a contest between um, the political structures of the past, really, and, and sort of this new model um, that Petro represents. What we got instead is two candidates who really embody the frustration with the, the political class and who are essentially populists um, aiming towards a sector of the population that is, is really just frustrated with the daily reality of life and have been able to read that sentiment and read the room well enough to capture it in their own rhetoric. Uh, so it's fair to say that throughout most of Colombia's modern history, that politics has been dominated by like the center right and the right wing, like sort of establishment parties. Uh, but now you have these very surprising result in which you have a left wing populist and a kind of right wing populist in, in Hernandez. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the the juncture that we're in is really important to understand sort of why Colombia is in this moment only now. Um, Unlike other countries in the region, Colombia has really never had an experience of a left-wing president in its sort of recent modern history. Um, And that has everything to do with the the civil conflict that it has been living for the last 50 years. Um, That was a conflict that pitted the Colombian state against um, several insurgency groups, the largest of which was the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as FARC. Um, The FARC and the Colombian state signed a peace agreement in 2016 that really reshaped the landscape for a few reasons. First, because left-wing politicians up to that point really faced a very strong social and uh, political stigma as somehow being sympathetic or aligned or too close to these leftist insurgent guerrillas that were threatening the state. Um, So their possibilities electorally were always just very limited. But even beyond that, I think um, the the sort of um, the range of issues that were uh, not tab- that were sort of okay to talk about in Colombian politics and um, really revolved around this existential conflict between the state and these insurgent movements. It was really taboo to go into topics like social inequality or frustration with the economic situation because it was like, wait, no, wait a minute, we have a more urgent threat, which is this internal civil conflict. And that really facilitated, I think, the perpetuation of um, a sort of right-leaning um status quo that has really existed in Colombia uh, since violence first emerged in the 20th century. And what we've seen since the peace accord, again, is that all of that, all of those limitations on politics have sort of evaporated. So now it's okay to talk about these things. Now they boil to the surface uh, very visibly. And now we have a wider range of politicians who are entering the conversation without that cloud of stigma um, shrouding them. So that status quo uh, has now been seemingly shattered uh, with the uh, first round of the Colombian elections, which saw uh, the left winger Gustavo Petro and the more right wing kind of firebrand Rodolfo Hernandez uh, elected. Both have like really interesting biographies, and I'd love to kind of dive uh, deep into each. Can we start with Gustavo Petro? What's his background? Gustavo Petro has really been sort of a staple of the political left uh, for many decades. So he 
um, as a young student, was part of an um, urban-based guerrilla movement called M19. And the M19 movement was, again, sort of had a leftist ideology, but was very much based in universities in Colombia, uh, very politically driven. Um, after the M19 demobilized, uh, Petrov remained sort of an academic and a thinker and an activist. Uh, he was a senator very successfully. He was the mayor of Bogota, um, a very sort of interesting, tumultuous, but also in some ways um, successful in terms of what he was trying to accomplish. He certainly expanded, I think, social programs, access to key services in the city, um, just as he's now promising to do at a national level. Um, but I think, you know, the the one of the major obstacles that Petro faces, because he's been a face that's been around for some time, um, his rhetoric is a bit sort of populist again, which is clearly the mood of the moment. Um, but I think in the sort of, again, the political traditional establishment, he has certainly been flagged as um, and, and stigmatized and accused of being someone who will take Colombia toward Venezuela model, who will, you know, drive the economy into the ground, who will expropriate create all things that he denies. Um, but there's certainly this sort of picture around him. He's sort of a larger than life personality. In many ways, frankly, the campaign up to this moment has not been about so much issues, but been about whether you're anti or pro-Petro. Hmm. And presumably being pro-Petro means you support like a broadly socialist agenda that is up till now something of uh, an anathema to, to Colombian politics, right? That's right. And I mean, I think we it's really important to remember what's happened in recent years. Again, since the signing of the peace agreement, when all of this space opened to talk about social grievances, last year we had mass protests across all of Colombia that shut down the country for two, three months. That was really an expression of the level of frustration that ordinary you know, citizens of Colombia enjoy. Um, the levels of inequality and social mobility here are staggering. Um, one of my favorite, because it's the most telling statistic, is from the OECD, which indicates that for a poor family uh, to advance to a median income, so sort of just mid-level, it would take 11 generations in the current economic system. So what does Petro promise? Petro promises to to open up opportunities in terms of education, in terms of uh, pension reform, in terms of health services, um, and frankly, to make the elite a little bit more uncomfortable um, because this this model of of sort of they win and everyone else loses, as he, I think, would describe it, um, is clearly not um, satisfying the majority of Colombians. So as you said, it was expected that Petro would uh, advance to the second round of the presidential election. What was not expected was the showing of Rudolfo Hernandez. Uh, can you describe his background and profile? He seems like kind of like a wild character. He is quite a character. That's exactly, I think, the, the way to describe him. And I think exactly why he has been able to plug into this moment. So if this was a, an election that was sort of going to favor outsiders, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez is the outsider. Um, he is a businessman from Santander, which is a region um, of Colombia that's home to the third or fourth largest city, Bucaramanga. Um, he made his career up from a very modest upbringing um, through property development uh, and, and sort of the selling and, and um, repurposing of land. Uh, today, he's a multimillionaire and speaks very freely his mind. Um, he is clearly someone who has strong opinions about the political class. He describes them as corrupt and useless. 
Um, he he has almost a Trumpian character to him in the sense that he doesn't have a filter. And he sort of, I think, says a lot of things that many Colombians feel inside, particularly about sort of the exploitation and corruption in the system. Um, and he's been able to change that, ch ch channel that very Uh, very well. Interestingly, um, his entire campaign has essentially been waged on social media. He hasn't shown up to debates. He hasn't held campaign events. Um, his campaign is extremely small. We're talking about maximum maybe a dozen people. Um, it's a very closed circle of advisors. He's clearly sort of a manager-in-chief type personality, wants to make the decisions, a bit distrustful of certainly, um, you know, the politicians who I've, I imagine, approached him in recent days. Um, and, and again, you know, I think what makes this contest now really interesting is that both Petro and Hernandez have a real opinion vote from the disaffected population of the lower class and also the working class. And frankly, You know, because inequality is so stark in Colombia, that could very easily propel either of them to victory, um, even without sort of the traditional machinations of, of Colombian politics, which has involved in the past vote buying, very specific organizing of collecting of votes by traditional parties. Those sort of mechanisms are being thrown up into the air with this contest between two people who really, you know, they haven't built themselves necessarily so much. Um, on that system. Other than being bombastic and focusing on corruption, does Hernandez have any discernible like policy platforms? So we've started to see in recent days, he just released his program um, and has started to sort of, I think, put a little bit more skin on the bones of, again, his, his sort of main focus, which is this idea of, of um, cracking down on corruption. Some of the things that he promises to do, for example, are to reduce the VAT tax, um, eliminate it altogether on food, for example. Um, so that certainly is sort of a popular type policy to, uh, you know, um, to appeal to the general population. Um, on sort of foreign policy and uh, geopolitical type issues, he wants to legalize marijuana and possibly even other drugs as well, arguing that the current approach does not works. Worked. I mean, he's threatened to close embassies and sell the houses in order to regain revenues and spend them on paying student debt. Uh, I mean, his 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 um, his policies are very much along the lines of cleaning house rooting out sort of these systematic interests that have gone into the system. Um, but again, the, the sort of like specifics, especially on corruption and anti-corruption programs are very unclear at the moment. What we have, again, is a sort of a lot of dart throwing at the wall to see what sticks. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see who populates that campaign in the next two weeks to try to really convince voters that there is a program behind um, all of this. Given that his rhetoric seems to be devoted to like cleaning house, as you said, is it surprising or, or interesting to you that the establishment uh, seems to be rallying uh, behind Hernandez? I saw, for example, that Gutierrez immediately gave his support to Hernandez. And it seems from what I'm reading that most of that kind of conservative right wing uh, establishment in Colombia politics that has become so entrenched is, is supporting Hernandez. I think there's two dynamics that we really have to keep in mind here. Um, the first one is something that it's really hard to understand, um, I think, outside of Colombia, which is just the depth and extent 
of what we call here petrophobia. So basically this idea that if Petro is able to take power, um, somehow he's going to completely unravel the entire economic system. He's going to take the country um, towards you know, disaster as Chavez and then Maduro have done supposedly. And we have to remember that Colombia now is home to several million Venezuelan migrants. So the experience of watching those individuals flee Venezuela, the stories they tell, the extent of their economic deprivation and um, really poverty, I think, is a is a very powerful model for many Colombians to say, you know, these leftist leaders, I don't know. Um, Petro himself is a polarizing character. And again, he has just, uh, I think, while he has certainly built up his base and it has grown, um, for example, since the last time he ran for president four years ago, it has grown significantly. Um, I think the petrophobia this idea that anyone is better than Petro has also expanded. And that's very much the logic that moves us towards Hernandez. I think one of the key dynamics in a way to understand why Hernandez emerged as sort of the next candidate and the candidate that will face him in a second round is really because of this, this fear of Petro. And the polling um, several weeks ago, if for the second round, sort of mapping out like if, you know, if certain candidates advance, who would win, it showed that the the, the previous establishment care, um, candidate, Fico Gutierrez, would not win necessarily against Petro in a second round. Hernandez, however, again, because he has this real opinion vote, he appeals to, frankly, some of the same population that Petro appeals to. Um, he was pulling much better. And today, the first polls that came out for a second round show that he's as many as seven polling points ahead of Petro in a mm. second round. So, you know, again, polling is never has never been perfect here. And there's a lot of caveats to add to that. And, but I think that one of the reasons we saw a significant shift from the right towards Hernandez was simply out of a logic to beat Petro. So I'm curious to learn from you how the security situation in Colombia is informing politics. Uh, you wrote in a recent piece on the Crisis Group's uh, website that uh, the country is entering a dangerous period with armed groups across the board uh, intensifying their use of violence uh, so far in the first few months of this year. Can you describe that security dynamic and weigh in on how that security dynamic is informing voters as they head to the polls in late June or mid-June? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just a, a bit of context. So when the peace agreement was signed in 2016 with the FARC, uh, what it did was remove the largest actor of conflict. Uh, but what it didn't do was have a solution for how to sort of fill those gaps and uh, vacuums that were left behind. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the last four years is that other armed groups and criminal organizations have been much more adept at filling those spaces than the Colombian state. So, for example, in a rural area that is, you know, um, where coca is grown or where there's a trafficking route along rivers, it has been much easier for criminal and armed groups to move into those areas than for the military and the uh, social services and institutions of the state, um, they simply haven't, frankly, had the will or the capability to keep up with that um, dynamic. As a result, we really have a, a conflict that hasn't gone away, but it's simply been reconfigured. We have more actors on the ground. We have more armed groups with more localized interests that are not necessarily driven by ideology as in the past, but more by economic calculations and local concerns about territorial control. And um, 
in the beginning of in, in the first months of this year, we have seen an acceleration of um, activity from armed groups to consolidate the places they already have control of, to move into new areas, uh, really sort of a, a brazen attitude, uh, taking advantage of, of sort of the lack of strategy that has emerged from the government to combat this situation. I think the, the risk now in this electoral scenario is that the you know these armed groups are very good at understanding when their opportunities um, are emerging. And any time there's uncertainty or the eye is off the ball or the military is distracting, distracted by protecting voting booths, um, they're going to take advantage of that situation, which is something that we've already seen. Um, and I think we can expect to see in the coming months. So whoever arrives in office, um, they'll be inaugurated in August. They're going to face a very urgent situation, um, an urgent situation in which uh, a higher and higher percentage of Colombian territory is now occupied and in some cases fully controlled uh, by illicit armed groups. If that's sort of the, the sort of state of play of the armed groups who are sort of not the FARC, who are not folded into that 2016 peace agreement, what impact does this election have on that 2016 peace agreement and its implementation? This is so important because what the 2016 peace agreement did, um, this is an agreement that's more than 300 pages. And it's quite unique internationally in that it went well beyond sort of just demobilizing this insurgency to really sort of address some of the fundamental reasons that that conflict has been perpetuated for so many years in Colombia. Things like uh, the lack of state presence in rural areas, vast inequality between urban and, and rural settings, uh, the inability for um, a, for uh, poor um, peasants to access land. Um, these sorts of fundamentals have driven the contact and conflict and facilitated armed groups' uh, predation, really, on the civilian population for many years. The peace agreement offered a roadmap on how to unravel some of these structural trends. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that the implementation has been very slow and very spotty, <clears throat> focusing really on political priorities of this particular government rather than on combating some of these hard issues. Uh, I think that you know our message to whoever takes office in August is that this is the last and final opportunity to take advantage of the opportunity that um, the peace agreement offers. There was a window of security. There was a window of trust that opened with this agreement. I think a new president will have once again an opportunity of trust to show that they are interested and committed to implementing the agreement. If that window is lost, frankly, I think that the deterioration of the security situation in the countryside and also the lack of trust from communities who live in these areas is really going to make the full implementation of the peace agreement um, somewhat impossible. And that would really be a tragedy because it would be truly a missed opportunity to shift Colombia's future path away from violent armed conflict in rural areas and towards uh, you know, a more sustainable model. Is it fair to say that, at least in theory, given his history and, and current politics, that Petro would be perhaps more inclined to want to fulfill the obligations of the 2016 peace agreement than Hernandez? Well, the first data point here we have is um, there was a referendum on the peace agreement when it was first negotiated and signed in 2016. And the country was quite divided between yes to the peace agreement and no, uh, Petro voted yes and Hernandez voted no. 
And if you look at the electoral map that emerged from this recent vote, um, it's quite interesting because uh, the vast majority of regions that voted yes on the peace agreement voted for Petro. And the vast vast majority of regions that voted no on the peace agreement are with Hernandez. Now, having said that, both candidates have committed on paper at least to implementing the agreement. On the Petro side, I think for sure um, we might expect a, an invigorated process, for example, of rural development, uh, different cha- you know, changes, for example, uh, towards um, poor coca farmers who are, you know, need a way out of that livelihood. I think on Hernandez's side, the details are completely unclear. And I think that this is really a symptom, frankly, more than anything, of the lack of uh, infrastructure that his campaign has, the lack of sort of uh, policy yet on paper. Um, so, you know, the, the, what we can say about him really is we don't know what he would do on the agreement, which parts he would find interesting to implement and which parts he would probably leave behind. So you mentioned earlier that uh, Hernandez seems to be leading in some early polls, and we're speaking on Wednesday, June 1st, about, what, two weeks or so ahead of the elections. Um, In the coming days or or weeks, what would you be looking towards that will suggest to you how this election will play out? So I think, you know, if you do the electoral math... as it stands from the first round vote. Uh, Petro came out with about 40% of the vote with about 9 million. And uh, Hernandez got about 6 million while his, um, you know, his close um, third place candidate, Fico Gutierrez, got about uh, 5 million. If you just do the electoral math, if we assume that the entire political right that supported Federico Gutierrez goes with Hernandez, Hernandez wins. That's sort of just the, 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 the sort of basic math that I think people are doing now. However, that is very far from being set in stone. Why? Because there's a huge um, pool of voters, I would say, that Hernandez and Petro potentially share that is still very much shifting and fluid. More of those voters could go with Petro. More of those voters would go, could go with Hernandez. Petro could work on a sort of getting out the vote type type. A style campaign in rural areas that would, I think, probably favor his election. Um, Hernandez also, I think, faces a real obstacle, or at least a challenge, in trying to maintain his outsider status while receiving, essentially, the support of the entire political traditional class. Um, and, and, you know, what he's done so far is saying anyone's welcome, but I'm not working with these people. You know, I don't have anything to do with them. Um, you know, they're corrupt and et cetera. Um, and, and sort of assuming that that part of the vote is guaranteed. He may be right. That might be a miscalculation. We just don't know. I think a big calculation here and how this turns out is voter turnout. Uh, if you have a lot of people who are, for example, disillusioned with the result or who don't show up, or if there are security incidents, for example, in the countryside that suppress turnout, this shifts the, dr- the result dramatically. Um, and again, I just really want to emphasize here that the interesting thing about this vote is that there is a high percentage of voters that are potentially shared between Petro and Hernandez. So we just don't know how it's all going to fall down. Uh, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. This was great, as always. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to talk with you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Elizabeth Dickinson, as always, for speaking with me. This is a very timely conversation. I always appreciate uh, when I can get a quick turnaround on world events like this. I know it helps you. It helps me, too. I, I love learning about these things. 
And as I mentioned in the introduction of this episode, if you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts, please do take a moment to leave a review of the show. It really does help. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.